This is Christian Knutson and Sarah Hopeful with your local news, coming to you from the WORST studios in beautiful downtown Madison. Here are tonight's headlines. Electricity providers across the state are petitioning the Wisconsin Public Service Commission to allow them to increase the rates they charge for electricity. Align Energy is applying for the largest rate hike of nearly 14% over the next two years, according to the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel. The company says the increases are necessary to cover the cost of retiring coal fire plants and investing in green energy. Madison Gas and Electric is proposing a more than 8% increase over two years to cover green energy investment. A new report from the Badger Project found that for the beginning of 2023, the Milwaukee Brewers spent more on lobbying the state government more than any other group, spending nearly $600,000. The organization is seeking millions in state funds for stadium renovations, but the state wants assurances that the franchise will not leave Wisconsin, according to the Capital Times. The lobbying push means that the organization outspent the Wisconsin Realtors Association and Wisconsin Manufacturers and Commerce, two big state lobbying spenders. A similar lobbying push by the Milwaukee Bucks in 2016 yielded results when they were awarded $250 million in public funding to build a new stadium. Controversy amidst justices on the Wisconsin Supreme Court is spilling out online and onto Wikipedia. The Milwaukee Journal Sentinel reports that portions of Justice Rebecca Bradley's page are locked down. That's after revisions to the page from dozens of Wikipedia users who hopped on the online encyclopedia after the Journal Sentinel reported that the justice herself had been quietly editing her page to remove unfavorable information. Bradley, a conservative jurist who's now in the court's ideological minority, told the Journal Sentinel's Dan Bice that she had removed dishonest information about her background. Information Bradley deleted included information about homophobic writings she had written while a student at Marquette University in 1992 that, among other things, compared homosexuals to drug addicts. Three new businesses are being proposed to fill in the bottom stories of a development complex on State Street, according to the Wisconsin State Journal. Harmonic Hospitality Group from Cedar Falls, Iowa, is proposing a retro nightclub, an arcade bar, and a tapas restaurant at the corner of State and West Gorham Streets. The development for this project, which was built by Core Spaces of Chicago, is 10 stories tall and includes nearly 400 apartment units, in addition to the retail space that could house these new establishments. It is the third major development project in downtown Madison overseen by Core Spaces, with another two in various stages of approval and development. The City of Madison announced today that it will be opening a new accessible playground at Warner Park. The playground includes a wheelchair-accessible swing, touch-and-play music panels, and rubber surfacing, all designed to increase the accessibility of the space. Mayor Satya Rhodes-Conway will be present for a short ribbon-cutting ceremony tomorrow. And now on to today's top stories. President Joe Biden stopped in Milwaukee today to tout his economic record, what he calls, quote, Bidenomics. Joined by Senator Tammy Baldwin and Governor Tony Evers, the president highlighted green energy initiatives in Wisconsin and across the nation as the 2024 presidential race shifts into gear. WORT reporter Willow Polish has more. 
President Joe Biden touched down in the Milwaukee Mitchell International Airport at 11.25 this morning before his speech at the wind turbine manufacturer. He was there to tout his record on the economy one year and change before the 2024 presidential election. Speaking at the Milwaukee chapter of Ingateam, an international manufacturer of wind and other renewable energy offices, President Biden hit on clean energy's role in the economy. When I think climate, I think jobs. Not a joke. He says Ingateam was brought to Wisconsin by tax incentives created by the Obama-Biden administration. John Imes, the director of the Wisconsin Environmental Initiative, says clean energy manufacturing is an economic driver in the state. Wisconsin already has seen an addition of over 71,000 clean energy jobs. And if we continue this transition, we could grow the state's economy by $21 billion and create 34,000 more jobs by 2050. Tony Evers and Tammy Baldwin also came out to show their support for President Biden and green energy policies. They highlighted how Wisconsin will also play an important role in green energy initiatives in the future. Tony Evers said this. And we're working towards building a strong, clean energy economy including releasing our state's first-ever clean energy plan to put us on a path to meeting our climate goals. Tammy Baldwin had more to say. But the good news is this. Wisconsin is ready to be an economic engine behind our renewable energy future. Wisconsin already has a lot of manufacturing-based infrastructure that could be vital in this market transition. John Imes says Wisconsin is uniquely positioned to expand. We've got over 354 companies already in the state. And by leveraging the new IRA federal tax credits through you know, the Wisconsin Economic Development Corporation, you know, targeted grants, loans, and business development, that could really be used to expand clean energy technology manufacturing and all those supply chains. He gives one example of how Wisconsin's uniquely positioned wind turbines. You know, wind turbines can have as many as 8,000 parts. Wisconsin's uniquely positioned to make those parts. You know, we have a fiberglass uh, molding capability in the northeast part of the state for maritime, you know, boat production. That could be retooled to create wind turbine blades. Biden's appearance also comes one day before the anniversary of the Inflation Reduction Act, legislation that poured millions of spending and tax breaks into accelerating an expansion of clean energy. President Biden also touted federal investments in other infrastructure, like an $80 million project to replace a bridge in Columbia County. Today's visit from the president was billed as an official visit, but was for all intents and purposes a campaign stop, and it perhaps signals the central role of the economy in the 2024 presidential election. Top Republicans were quick to criticize Bidenomics, with Republican Party of Wisconsin's chairman, Brian Schimming, saying the president's economic policies are, quote, the latest rendition of economic failure in the White House, unquote. Next Wednesday, GOP candidates vying in the Republican primary will also stop in Milwaukee for their first primary debate. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Willow Polish. Teacher turnover in Wisconsin reached its highest rate in more than a decade during the 2022-23 school year. New data indicates that this rate hits schools that serve low-income communities and communities of color the hardest. WORT producer Nate Carlin has the story. In the last school year, more than 15% of all Wisconsin public school teachers either switched school districts or left the profession altogether. That's according to a new report from the Wisconsin Policy Forum a nonpartisan policy research organization. 
Maria Hamadou was a fellow with the Wisconsin Policy Forum who worked on the study. She says that 2023 was an outlier for teacher turnover. We found the 2023 school year to be the highest within the time period that we studied at 15.8% with the highest move rate from one district to the other and the second highest leave rate, meaning leaving the public school classrooms altogether. That's higher than the typical annual turnover rate, which has been at about 11.5% since 2009, according to state staffing data. And in the last decade and a half, teacher turnover hasn't been equal across the state. That soared to unique heights in 2023, when just under one out of four black teachers left the job. Sarah Shaw, the Policy Forum senior researcher, says teachers of color, who comprise just under 5% of all teachers statewide, turn over at substantially higher rates than the state average. And that turnover comes with real impacts for students. So we saw that our white teachers were turning over just below the statewide average, um, 11.3%. And all of our other teachers of color groups, with the exception of one small sample size, were above that average, which is particularly concerning because of our previous research pointing to the benefit of teachers of color for all students and especially for students of color. Meanwhile, the study finds that towns and suburbs are slightly more likely to retain teachers than schools and cities in rural districts. The study also examines where teachers go when they leave. Some school districts, particularly rural schools, are donors, schools where teachers frequently begin their career before moving on. Rural schools especially suffer from losing teachers to suburban school districts, possibly because of pay disparities. Still, across districts, teacher turnover was driven more by teachers leaving than profession than by teachers moving districts. Researchers at the Policy Forum say that the high rate of teacher turnover is a national problem and isn't unique to Wisconsin, or even to the educator labor force. And possible solutions could widely vary by district, though they suggest that strategic use of remaining pandemic relief funds may help stem the flow. Locally, that's just what the Madison Metropolitan School District opted to do, giving an 8% base wage increase to staff using one-time pandemic relief aid that expires at the end of this year. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Nate Carlin. Nearly half of high school girls report feeling sad and hopeless nearly every day. That's twice the rate of teen boys, according to a fact sheet released by the Wisconsin Office of Children's Mental Health. WRT reporter Hee-Wan Lim dove deeper into what's driving this phenomenon. Nearly 60% of teen girls in the state report experiencing depression or anxiety, a dramatic increase from 10 years ago. 25% reported considering suicide, 20% made a plan, and 11% attempted death by suicide. That has researchers searching for root causes, including individual stressors like academics, early sexualization, body image, and online bullying, along with societal stressors like gun violence, climate change, and politics. Sita Deal, advocacy director at the National Alliance on Mental Health, says that these drivers are complex. Adolescent girls are very vulnerable to mental health problems and particularly with things about body image and then early sexualization, particularly of black girls. And then adding on top of that, the increasing use of smartphones by kids under the age of 12. The way young people look at social media and they see a lot of sexual content and they see a lot of body image kinds of things. And that sort of exacerbates, opens doors that may have not been open before or not as open before. Stress can accelerate the aging process, and early studies show that the stress of the pandemic may have caused early puberty in girls younger than eight and boys younger than nine. A 2016 study by the American Psychological Association shows that children who hit puberty earlier than their peers are at increased risk for depression, substance abuse, and early sexual behavior than those who develop later. 
Dr. Megan Marino, an adolescent health expert and co-medical director of the National Center of Excellence on Social Media and Youth Mental Health, says emotions and social behaviors can develop faster than the parts of the brain that help control behavior, leading to difficulty processing complex feelings. It can be really challenging for girls to figure out their place in society. And for adolescent girls in particular, we know that they're more likely to face issues around things like body image or comparing themselves to other women. I think we also have a lot of messages in society about all the things that girls can do. But by the time they're adolescents, many teens have already started to see some of the limitations that are placed on them based on gender. Black and Indigenous girls seem to be at higher risk for mental health issues. In May of 2023, the Wisconsin Department of Health Services found that Black girls were 25% more likely to self-harm when compared to all female survey respondents between the ages of 10 to 19. And Indigenous girls were 106% more likely to self-harm. So what can we do to support the teens around us? Dr. Moreno recommends that parents and caregivers look to their own social media habits. Providing support for all teens with how they navigate social media is really important. And I think that that includes ensuring that parents are navigating their own use of social media in healthy ways. So one of the newer predictors that we're seeing in some of the emerging studies about teens who are struggling is that parents' social media use has been more likely to be associated with poor child mental health than the child's own social media use. Making sure that parents are connected, are communicating with their kids, are spending time with their kids without looking at their own phones, I think is going to be a really important factor as we navigate the next five to ten years. Deal agrees that adults need to have conversations surrounding social media consumption, but also says that engage with teens around responsible use of social media and particularly having young influencers who can talk to teens about responsible use of social media and then also having better access to mental health providers. Governor Evers declared 2023 as the year of mental health in January and just shy of $36 million of new mental health spending is headed to Wisconsin over the next two years. Still, That's less than 10% of the original funding proposed by the governor earlier this year. Mental health hotlines and resources will be linked in the online version of this story. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Hiwan Lim. Researchers have noted the cost is is the biggest barrier for Indigenous students completing their college education. But some in the higher education field say these students sometimes don't know there are scholarships available or how to access them. But a Wisconsin project hopes to make that information more readily available. Mike Moen of the Wisconsin News Connection has more. Indigenous college students face many obstacles in higher education, including overwhelming costs and not feeling culturally connected on campus. But those behind a Wisconsin project say another barrier is not having support and seeking financial aid. The University of Wisconsin-Madison Star Lab is using a half-million-dollar foundational grant to create a one-stop shop for Indigenous students to find scholarship programs and other forms of financial relief specifically geared for them. 
Project co-leader Gresham Collum says the searchable database will hopefully create more awareness that slipped by him when he was a college student. I'm a first descendant member of the Stockbridge Munson Mohegan tribe, which means I'm not a formally enrolled member. And a lot of these scholarship policies are based on formal enrollment in a federally recognized tribe. But he later found out when his sister was enrolling that there was a handful of schools in the U.S. with free tuition programs for first descendant natives. Ellum says as more states add scholarship and grant initiatives, these individuals need up-to-date information. Wisconsin doesn't have a tuition waiver for natives, but it does offer need-based grants for those who are at least 25% Native American. Gollum says he hopes the effort also compels more higher ed institutions to expand opportunities and update policies. He notes it can go beyond traditional financial aid. A lot of indigenous students come from low-income areas where they have Pell Grant funding. And what I would like to see is a lot of these programs expand their offerings to cover costs like child care, health care, basic cost of living. He says those wraparound issues often get in the way of indigenous students advancing their college careers. Colin predicts the database will not only be web-friendly, but mobile-friendly, too, knowing that many Native students come from tribal areas with limited access to high-speed Internet. Mike Moen, Wisconsin News Connection. Find our rate trust indicators to support transparency and accuracy at publicnewsservice.org. Support for this reporting was provided by Lumina Foundation. It's now 6.20 p.m. and you're listening to the live local news on WORT. Defamation lawsuits can be costly for local media, especially when they are smaller outlets without deep pockets to sustain a drawn-out legal fight. Jeremy W. Peters is a reporter for the New York Times. He has a story out today that describes such a fight here in Wisconsin and sat down with WRT producer Nate Carlin to discuss his piece. I'm speaking with Jeremy W. Peters, a reporter for the New York Times. He published a story today on how a defamation suit is being used against a local media outlet in Wisconsin. The Wausau Pilot and Review is facing a costly legal battle against a local politician. The move is in line with the continuing trend of politicians being hostile to the media and using any tool in the arsenal to fight the press. What is the Wausau Pilot and Review? Uh, so the Wausau Pilot and Review is you know, one of the biggest sources of news and most popular sources of news in the Wausau area, and it's a website. It doesn't publish a print publication, and its coverage on the ins and outs of daily life in Wausau has been one of the few remaining reliable sources of news, given all the cutbacks at newspaper chains like Gannett over the years. And what happened in August uh, 2021? So in August 2021, the publication did what any local publication would do. It covered a contentious local council government meeting, and things got out of hand at the meeting. And uh, according to the Pilot and Review and its sources, a local businessman who's now a state senator by the name of Corey Tomsick uttered uh, an anti-gay slur 
at a young man who had spoken up in favor of a resolution that would have basically declared Wausau a community for all, meaning that it promoted things like diversity uh, and inclusion initiatives. And once the Pilot and Review published this, uh, relying on people who had heard Mr. Thompson utter this slur, uh, he demanded they retract the story. He, he claims he didn't say it. They refused to retract the story because they had sources um, backing them up, and he sued them for defamation. And then what, what, what's the result of that defamation suit? Well, a judge threw it out, said, you know, there's, there's no claim here against the Wausau Pilot and Review, and so uh, Senator Tomsick is now appealing that. And uh, how did you come to this story? What, what led you to hear about a, a newspaper in Wausau? We got a tip from another reporter in Wisconsin who was very concerned about the chilling effect that this could have on publications like the Wausau Pilot Review and other um, online sources of news that are increasingly you know, a leading source in these communities in, in Wisconsin that no longer have a robust local newspaper. Yeah, can you walk me through that a little bit? Uh, it sounds like the the lawsuit eventually got thrown out. So so how does this have a, a chilling effect on, on First Amendment? Well, it's not thrown. I mean, it, yes, a judge threw it out, but it's still an active case. And the Wausau Pilot and Review is having to spend a lot of money, close to $200,000 at this point, continuing to defend itself. So that's money uh, that that could very well end up putting it out of business. So that's the chilling effect. If you you go after, if you're wealthy enough and powerful enough to have the resources to go after a news outlet like the Wausau Pilot and Review that that can't spend endless sums of money defending itself, then that threatens other publications like it and its size. And how is defamation law supposed to work? Is this a a normal operation of defamation, I guess? The Wausau Pilot uh, and Review is, in a lot of ways, a victim of the laws, or lack thereof, um, around defamation in Wisconsin. Many states, Wisconsin is not one of them, have what's called anti-slap laws that allow people who are sued for defamation, but later proven to have done nothing wrong, to recover damages for that. The idea is to protect vulnerable people and institutions, businesses, from frivolous lawsuits that basically put them in the poorhouse. Wisconsin doesn't have one of those laws. So the Wausau Pilot and Review is on the hook for these costs, basically, no matter what. And in your article, you talk a little bit about how this is in line with other politicians using defamation uh, lawsuits against um, other media outlets. Can can you walk me through that pattern a little bit? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's mostly, although not exclusively, conservatives uh, and Republicans uh, who have turned to this tactic of using the legal system to go after their uh, who they perceive to be their critics in the media, their their enemies. And we've seen this happen, you know, starting straight from the very top with Donald Trump. When Donald Trump was first running for president in 2016, he advocated for the loosening of libel laws that would make it easier for figures like him to sue news outlets. Because of the unique protections of the First Amendment, it's very difficult to win a defamation case against uh, a media outlet if you are a public figure like 
Donald Trump uh, because the, the legal standard that the Supreme Court has set uh, is so high. It's called the actual malice standard, and that means that if you're a public official doing someone for defamation, you have to prove that that media outlet acted with reckless disregard for the truth or that it knew what it was publishing was false. And, and, and that's very rare that that ever happens and, 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 of course, very difficult to prove. And uh, I guess what, what kind of resources uh, are available for smaller media outlets? What, what can they do when they get caught in these uh, perpetual lawsuits? I mean, in, in, in a state like Wisconsin that doesn't have what's, what's called a, the, the anti-slap uh, statute, it's, it's very hard for them to defend themselves because they will be held uh, accountable for covering their legal costs, and they, they can't recoup those. There are funds, nonprofit, that help in situations like these, but, you know, those, those funds are not limitless, and there aren't, you know, a whole lot of places that are willing to, to involve themselves in, in messy and expensive fights like these. Do you see this as a, a larger pattern of uh, hostility towards media? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think the media um, has always been the sub- subject of, you know, derision and, and, and mistrust by folks on, on all sides, uh, all ends of the political spectrum. But, you know, what you've seen in the last few years, I think, you know, is, is something journalists would describe as, you know, an increasingly and troubling hostility coming from partisans and, and, and mainly Republican partisans who are aligned with Donald Trump, who dislike and, and resent the critical coverage that the media uh, has, has given to him. And it just seems odd that that has uh, trickled out into a place like Wausau. I mean, I, I can sort of understand the hostility towards CNN from a ideological perspective, but when it's just your, your local paper, it seems a little, a little different. Right. It, you know, you would think so. But like these days with everything becoming so nationalized, you know, they, they, they used to say that all politics is local. Well, that's just not true anymore with the internet and cable news. It's, um, it's, it's everything has been nationalized, our political debate. And the media, you know, has not been immune from the ugliness uh, of that fight. That was Jeremy W. Peters, a reporter for The New York Times, who has a piece out today titled, Report on Anti-Gay Slur Could Put Local News Site Out of Business. It's about a legal battle that is jeopardizing a local media outlet in Wisconsin. Every year, millions of birds die in collisions with windows. Brenna Marzacek is the Director of Communications and Outreach for the Madison Audubon Society, and she spoke with contributor Catherine Garvins about the prevalence of window collisions and what the regular person can do to prevent this problem. Each year, millions of birds are killed in collisions with buildings. But there are things you can do, even at home, to mitigate the instances of these collisions. Joining me today to talk about this and about upcoming opportunities to learn more is Brenna Marsicek, 
Director of Communications and Outreach with the Madison Audubon. Brenna began working with Madison Audubon as a summer ecological intern in 2007. That internship helped her determine a career path in nature-related nonprofit work and eventually led her back to Madison Audubon in 2016. Brenna graduated from UW-Madison in 2008 with degrees in Geography, Environmental Studies, and International Studies. Brenna, welcome to WRT, and thanks for joining me. Yes, it's great to be here. I understand that you coordinate uh, Madison Audubon's Bird Collision Corps. Uh, tell me about how you monitor this and your work with building owners. Yeah, sure. So the Bird Collision Corps is a group of volunteer citizen scientists that sign up to monitor certain buildings in the Madison area. This program began in 2018 as a collaboration between Madison Audubon and the University of Wisconsin-Madison, as well as the Dane County Humane Society's Wildlife Center as a way to get a better sense of which buildings are really problematic for birds in terms of hitting windows. And if there's anything that we can do about it, what are those things that we can change? So this group of volunteers signs up, they receive training, they receive a survey kit. And then during the survey period, they go out once a week in the morning to survey certain buildings. So they walk around the outside of the buildings looking at the base of windows to see if they can find any birds that have hit windows and have fallen to the ground, either injured or stunned or dead. And then they document each of those occurrences in our data portal so that at the end of the survey period, we're able to have a nice data set that shows where these window collisions are happening. And then we can track that over time and make some recommendations about what the building owners can do. So since 2018, that program has expanded. So now we are working with partners at American Family Insurance, which has their national headquarters on the east side of Madison. We also work around Capitol Square with Urban Land Interest, which is a a company that owns a bunch of buildings there, as well as the Madison Children's Museum, the Overture Center, and the Madison Museum of Contemporary Art. Uh, We also work now with Holy Wisdom Monastery, Monona Public Library, Sun Prairie Public Library, Verona Public Library, and there's also a couple of buildings on the Isthmus, so the building that Madison Youth Arts is in and the surrounding area. So the program is really designed to get a snapshot of how many birds are dying at these locations, and then to be able to really hone in on which windows exactly are the problematic ones so that we can make some suggestions for how those can be modified to be less dangerous for birds. And these are primarily, in this program, commercial buildings. Is that correct that you're monitoring? That's right. The volunteers only monitor commercial buildings in Mm -hmm. this program. Mm -hmm. But I understand that Millions of birds are killed every year in collisions with homes, one to three story buildings. So I believe part of the Save Our Songbirds campaign and the Wisconsin Bird Conservation Partnership is aimed at educating people on on how they can prevent bird collisions with their windows at their home. Absolutely. So of the about 600 million birds that die after hitting windows every year, Almost half of those happen 
at homes. So we're at residences that are between one and three stories. So yeah, that's a, that's a huge number. And the nice thing about homes is that you can do a lot. You can fix your windows. You can look at which ones are the problematic windows. You can pay attention and it's relatively inexpensive and easy for a homeowner to modify their windows, put up a window treatment than it is for a very large building. So it's really empowering and exciting for homeowners to be able to get a little more information about what's going on at their at their homes and at their windows. A lot of folks have noticed whether there are birds hitting a certain window. You know, some folks will tell me it's always the big window in the living room or it's always my sliding door that goes to the deck. Folks tend to know which windows are the problematic ones. And it's just a matter of finding the right window treatment that they like looking at and that is within their price range and that they can do themselves or know who to talk to about putting it up. So it's it's a really great, almost instantaneous change that you can make at your home. Once you put up a window treatment, the positive effects of it start right away. And I know that your group has a lot of webinars and other opportunities for folks to learn more just in the coming weeks. Why the urgency now for this initiative? That's a great question. So through the Bird Collision Corps, which is this program that surveys commercial buildings, we've been able to gather a lot of information about why and when bird collisions happen most often. So we have found that bird collisions happen at almost two times the frequency in the fall than they do in the spring. And migration is a really big time frame for these collisions to happen in because birds are on the move. They have to go north or they have to go south and they are moving a lot. In the fall, there are also a lot of new birds. That's right after the nesting season. So migrating birds are really susceptible to window collisions because they do have this strong instinctual need and urge to migrate. But it's also a problem for resident birds as well. So birds that are here year round, they tend to be less commonly found as window collisions, but it's still a problem for for any type of bird that is near a home or near a building. Windows present a real problem. So these are birds like cardinals and chickadees and woodpeckers that we see here in the winter as well as in the summer. And what are the ways that homeowners can prevent bird collisions? So paying attention to which windows are the problematic ones is the first step. You have to know where it's a problem. It's most likely that it's one or two windows in a home that are causing most or all of the problems. And so there's no need to put a window treatment up on all of the windows in your home. It's important to start with just the ones that are problematic. So once you have that kind of dialed in and you know which ones to to focus your energy and your money toward, then you need to find one of the options that suits your style and your price range. So those options include paracord curtains. You can make these at home. They're made out of paracord, which is like a string that doesn't tangle and it's very solid in weather, solid in the sense that it doesn't, you know, deteriorate quickly and it doesn't have issues when it gets rained on or snowed or ice. So paracord curtains 
are very effective. Sometimes they're called Zen curtains, or there's a, a company that makes them called Acopian Bird Savers. So they have a great website for finding resources on how to make them or to buy them. Another option is to use dot decals or small square decals. These are semi-permanent stickers that go on the outside of the glass. And really the best way to treat your windows is to put a window treatment on the outside of the glass because that reduces the reflection of the glass as well as the transparency. So regardless of whether the bird sees a tree or a shrub in the reflection of the window, and that's why they're coming at it, or if they see sky on the other side of the window that they're trying to move through to get to, Either way, those window treatments are effective if they're on the outside of the glass. So dot decals are also a great way to prevent window collisions because they are applied to the outside of the glass. They last for a long time, upwards of 10 years, and they are something that you can do at home. Usually it helps to have a partner involved in that setup. So they are small. They're about a quarter inch wide, and you set them up in a grid of about two inches by two inches. And and that follows the best practices found by American Bird Conservancy that is known to reduce the highest number of window collisions. So these dot decals are available through companies like Feather Friendly and Kaleidoscape. They're available for purchase online and there are some retailers locally that will carry them, but they are very effective and a lot of times people like how they look. So they're an aesthetically pleasing option as well. If you have a window that's kind of protected from the weather, you could also try using something like tempera paint that is available in craft stores for like $2 a bottle. And you can paint a design on the outside of the glass. This is really fun for kids and for folks who are more artistic or if you like to change the way that your windows look for like the badger game or fall or you know you can theme it however you want it and you can just paint your design up there again following that two inch by two inch best practice so that you don't have any more than two inches of glass between the paint designs. All great information. And I believe you have webinars coming up Wednesday, August 23rd. Yeah, these webinars are really great for folks who want to be able to get a better understanding of what causes the problem. Why do birds hit windows in the first place? And then what are some options for finding a a good solution for windows at home? This is really designed for homeowners and renters and folks who want to focus in on the places that they live and less so about commercial buildings. So this is a, a great first step resource for folks to get thinking about what they can do about their windows at home and especially in advance of fall migration. So birds really start migrating in September in you know, full force. September, October are really big months for fall migration. And so having some ideas and a plan in place and even starting to purchase some materials and get a sense for what you want to do with your windows in August so that it's ready for migration in September is is a really great first step. And can you let our listeners know where they can find out more information, not only about the webinars, but about various ways to prevent bird collisions? Yeah, so the Madison Audubon website has a page called Prevent Collisions. So it's Madison Audubon, A-U-D-U-B-O-N dot O-R-G slash Prevent Collisions. Save Our Songbirds has a website as well called S-O-S, Save Our Songbirds dot O-R-G. And both of those are really great start 
starting points for finding ideas on how you can treat windows and find resources and events coming up that you can participate in and learn more. And is there anything, uh, briefly, anything else that we've not discussed that is important for our listeners to know about this issue? Yeah, I think this is a great example of how environmental conservation doesn't have to be complicated and hard. You know, this is something that everyone can do, whether it's at your own home or your neighbor's home or a family member. This is a really great way to make a big difference for for birds. So I really encourage folks to look up some different ways that you can make a difference in your own neighborhood. Well, Brenna, thank you so much for joining me today. Yes, thank you. It was great to be here. I have been speaking with Brenna Marsicek. She is Director of Communications and Outreach for Madison Audubon and coordinates the Bird Collision Corps Volunteer Program. We spoke today about webinars and other upcoming events where you can learn more about preventing bird collisions at your home. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Katherine Garvins. Tonight on Wildlife Weekly, Jackie Sandberg describes all the time and certifications that go into being able to care for injured birds and other wildlife. Welcome to Wildlife Weekly. My name is Jackie Sandberg, and I'm the Wildlife Program Manager for the Dane County Humane Society here in Madison, Wisconsin. Each week, we choose a topic related to wildlife rehabilitation or the environment, and today I wanted to talk a little bit more about what wildlife rehabilitators are and why they're important in the community. So I know that we've spent a lot of time here on WORT talking about really fun stories of wildlife, and I'm going to highlight that today in this short segment. But I know that there are going to be some new listeners that probably don't know what our wildlife program does at DCHS and why we're actually here as licensed individuals. So as wildlife rehabilitators, we're permitted for the state of Wisconsin and the federal government, so U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, to be able to work with thousands of different animals every year. And every rehabilitator is different in their capacity. It could be a couple of animals a year, it could be a hundred, it could be thousands. We happen to be a facility that's very large in the state of Wisconsin, working with all species for the most part in the southwestern Wisconsin area, except for a few species. Um, we don't work with species like raccoons or deer or invasive species, um, but we work with most other native animals. Now, to work with birds, you do need a federal permit, and that federal permit allows us to work with migratory species. It takes over a year and at least 100 hours of experience with each category of different species of birds because of how diverse those animals are. So if you want to work with raptors as a rehabilitator, it's going to take a lot of time working with different raptor species. Maybe you want to work with shorebirds, maybe songbirds. There's hundreds and hundreds of different species that we have, especially in our state and in the Midwest area, and it's a lot to learn. Every species has different dietary requirements, has different habitats, has different, you know, stress levels in care and captivity, which has taken folks a long time, time and experience really, to grant those permits. And wildlife rehabilitation is not an easy career. It takes years of practice and mentorship with other folks who have been wildlife rehabilitators. And it's a really interesting system for sure, but it takes at least two years with a basic level license in Wisconsin to get to the level of an advanced level license. And then again, another permit on top of that to work with migratory birds. 
Migratory birds are all protected by the Migratory Bird Treaty Act here in the U.S., and that is why we have separate permits to work with avian species versus mammals or reptiles. So we have state permits, we have federal permits, and we do it because it's honestly, it's a community resource that I think a lot of people forget or just don't know about. As rehabilitators, we are here to help with so many different things. So one example would be that we're caring for the lives of animals who couldn't care for themselves. So right now in care, for example, we have a couple of baby house wrens. They are so sweet. They're very chatty. Um, if you know house wrens, they're loud. But we had just a wonderfully dedicated couple who was watching their nest box. Mama wren was coming every single day, multiple times a day to feed the babies. A couple of them had already fledged. And then all of a sudden, one day, they were watching and they saw what they thought was a Cooper's hawk um, flying up above that chased mom out of the picture. And they were watching diligently. Well, then mom never came back. A couple hours later, they were watching. You know, they were watching all the time and no mama. And that's, that's different. That's a huge change. So if you're that type of person where you're really monitoring your nest boxes, you know, that's a big worry. What happens to those baby wrens? Well, they will not make it without human intervention. So they were brought in um, after our advice in triaging that case, and now they are in care. They are um, very hungry, very explorative, very cute. Um, but what would happen to those babies without their parent or without parental input for, you know, being able to feed them, which is every half hour, sometimes every 15 minutes from sunup to sundown. It's a huge job. We also, you know, not only care for those orphaned animals that people find in the wild, but the ones that are injured. So if they get hit by a car, maybe mom got injured by that aerial predator, but they missed and she's left alone with some puncture wounds. Uh, maybe it's our little grebe that we talked about a couple of weeks ago here that crash landed in the middle of a parking lot and had a fractured shoulder girdle. Uh, wasn't able to fly away. These animals that are injured, they would perish. And it's a lot of pain to go through having to sit there with a fracture where there's nobody to help you. You don't have a doctor's office to go to. Wildlife rehabilitators kind of are that for wildlife, except that people find the wild animals that are hurt and sick and then bring them to a place that hopefully can treat them. And our goal is to treat all, all the animals that come through, but in reality, some of those injuries are so severe that there's not really a chance of survival. And it depends on how quickly intervention is from, you know, again, the kindness of people's hearts. It could be a window strike, and the first 24 to 48 hours are crucial. You know, could have a lot of internal bleeding. It could have fractures. It could have head trauma. Um, all of that could be so severe that even a rehabilitator might not be able to treat it. But... I think trying is is the best thing that you can probably try to do. And that's why bringing it to someone who has a license and the knowledge of those species and the injuries and what to do and how to give supportive care, you know, and that's with the help of our sponsoring veterinarians who are so important to this whole practice. So wildlife rehabilitators and veterinarians are working together to help these animals. Um, so whether they're orphaned and they wouldn't make it without being fed, or if they were injured and sick and they wouldn't make it because they would be sitting on the ground just waiting for the inevitable. I think those are the two main reasons why wildlife rehabilitators exist is to help those animals because if you put yourself in the place of that animal, would you want to be there without help or assistance? And so, you know, thinking of it from that perspective, rehabilitation really is a critical community resource because there are a lot of wild animals out there. There's a lot of wild animals that need our help. And I don't think there's enough of uh, us out there to actually help them. So 
be on the lookout, be a member of the public that helps support wildlife rehabilitation in the community, be an advocate for wildlife, you know, know your wildlife rehabilitators in your area, in your region, in your state, and definitely consider funding. It's not something that we can charge services for. We just do it because it's a labor of love is what we like to call it. So thanks for listening here on WORT today, uh, talking about what wildlife rehabilitators do, how you can do it with, you know, a license and certain species, um, highlighting a few patients that we have in care right now, our little house wrens. And just want to say thank you for listening and know that if you have any questions about wildlife or you find any animals that are sick or injured, please give us a call at 608-287-3235. Thanks for listening. This has been Wildlife Weekly. And that does it for our show. Thanks for listening to WRT's Live Local News at 6. Your reporters tonight were Hewan Lim and Willow Polish with additional reporting from the Wisconsin News Connection. Special thanks to feature contributors Jackie Sandberg and Catherine Garvins. Super Dave Lawrence engineered the show. Nate Carlin produced this newscast. And Shally Pittman is the news director at WRT. I'm your host, Sarah Hopeful. Stay up to date with the WRT Local News podcast and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And I'm your host, Christian Knutson. Up next is Spanish Language News with an oyster patio. Good night.